Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Right now, New Hampshire voters in Nashua, they're putting their stamp on the Democratic presidential race. You're looking at live pictures. It's the first primary of 2020 and a second critical test of the candidates after the chaos in Iowa. We want to welcome our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer in the CNN Election Center. We're counting down to the first votes out of New Hampshire about three hours from now. That's when most polling places close across the state. 11 Democrats are competing in the unpredictable and changing race, but the stakes are highest for a few top contenders. Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are in a pivotal rematch after their virtual tie in Iowa. Sanders has history in New Hampshire, winning big in the primary four years ago. Joe Biden is eager to improve on his very disappointing fourth place standing in Iowa. He calls it a gut punch to his campaign. Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar also are hoping to beat expectations tonight to help secure a path forward. All of them are feeling new urgency to prove they can defeat President Trump after his impeachment trial ended in acquittal. We'll get early clues about the outcome soon. We'll reveal our first exit poll information about an hour from now. In the meantime, let's go to Jake Tapper. He's got more. Jake. Thanks, Wolf. You know, after the Iowa mess, many Democrats are hoping that tonight's results out of New Hampshire will be clear cut. Our correspondents are covering it all. They're at key locations across the Granite State and at polling places as well as campaign headquarters. First, let's check in with the camps of Sanders and Biden. Ryan Nobles is covering Bernie Sanders for us. Uh, And Ryan, you spoke with Senator Sanders uh, not long ago. Yeah, that's right, Jake. We caught up with the senator about an hour ago, and there's no doubt that he is feeling confident about his chances here in New Hampshire. He stopped short of calling it a must win, but he does expect a good night. Take a listen. Senator, first, uh, tell me about your feeling uh, for tonight, Uh, and particularly, you know, will the path to the nomination be more difficult for you if you're unable to pull out a first place finish here tonight? Well, we're not going to speculate. All I can tell you is we're feeling good. We have done what has to be done, and that is uh, we have had thousands and thousands of volunteers, and I want to thank all of them, uh, who have knocked on hundreds of thousands of doors in the state. They've made the phone calls. They have done what a campaign, a grassroots campaign, has got to do, and I hope it pays off tonight. Are you prepared, if you come out of here as a victor, to leave as the front runner, and what will it take to unify the Democratic Party? I think what it will take to unify the Democratic Party and unify the country is an agenda that speaks to the vast majority of the American people. I think sometimes people get confused about that. The agenda that we are bringing forth is the agenda of the American working class. People want to raise the minimum wage. They understand that health care is a human right. We need equal pay for equal work. We need to make it easier for kids, regardless of their income, to be able to go to college. We need criminal justice reform, immigration reform. Those are the ideas 
that the American people feel strongly about. And I think the ideas that we're fighting for. And front... And frontrunner is probably not a term that Bernie Sanders feels feels very comfortable with. He is often the underdog. But if he wins here tonight, Jake, it will be hard to describe him as anything but. Jake. All right. uh, Ryan Nobles and Sanders headquarters. Let's go uh, to Biden headquarters right now where we find Jessica Dean. Uh, Jessica, the vice president, uh, sure is setting expectations low uh, with his activities uh, this evening. That's right, Jake Tapper. We know that uh, the Bidens have already left their hotel here. They made an unscheduled stop and they are headed to the airport to go to South Carolina tonight where they plan to attend a launch party for their South Carolina efforts. This is I talked to a campaign, a source that's close to the campaign who told me it is put up or shut up time in South Carolina, that the vice president needs to focus on his base there. It's long been considered Biden's firewall, that overwhelming support he's seen from African-American voters. The question now is, will it it hold and can it be the firewall they want it to be in the meantime back here in nashua new hampshire we've got a ballroom uh we've got an event tonight but we have no candidate because (laughs) he will be in south carolina at that time we know that valerie biden owens his sister has been dispatched here she's going to address whomever shows up and we also are told that they will uh biden will address his supporters via live stream but jake we just don't know right now i've been asking around how many people do you expect nobody really knows how many people will show up tonight here in nashua uh, with the candidate in South Carolina. Yeah, not exactly a, a display of confidence. Uh, Jessica Dina Biden headquarters, uh, thanks so much. Uh, Dan, let me, uh, let me punch up the tapper tablet here. I want to talk about the importance of New Hampshire, specifically the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, uh, to who ultimately gets the nomination. And if historically you look, you'll see in the 1970s, the very worst that a candidate could do and g- then go on to get the nomination uh, is second place. Mm-hmm. McGovern, Carter, Mondale, Dukakis, Mondale and McGovern coming in second, Carter and Dukakis coming in first. And the same trend held through uh, in the 90s and the aughts. Uh, Clinton, Gore, Kerry, Obama, Clinton, all either coming in first or second place uh, in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, So, I mean, that's generally how people feel about the importance of this state. You really have to be in the top two. That's right. And what one of the remarkable things about what you just showed is that there's some really prime examples of New Hampshire breathing life into a campaign that was left for dead. Uh, both, you know, maybe not Hillary Clinton so much left for dead, but she was in big trouble back in 2008 after Iowa. Barack Obama beat her big time and then it brought her back to life. Uh, Bill Clinton is probably the best example. Yeah, Bill, the comeback the kid. The comeback kid. And, uh, and he had a lot of problems, uh, a lot of problems going in there. And, and, but, the, but the big difference between then and, for example, what we just saw with Jessica at the Biden campaign is that they fought. They fought hard and they got that that new life in their campaign. And Joe Biden and his campaign clearly just don't see that happening, that getting that 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 spark from the Granite State, which is why he's not even there. And that is a, a big telltale sign. And it really kind of conflicts with what we've seen in history. Yeah, although, of course, it could be a, a expectations game. For instance, if he comes in third, yeah. even though he's in South Carolina, people will be like, oh, Joe Biden, he came in third. Right. Wolf. All right, thanks very much. I want to go over to John King at, at the Magic Wall. John, uh, first of all, what are you looking for in this very, very early stage? Uh, not to be too snarky, I'm looking for them to count votes, uh, given our experience in Iowa. And in the early voting last night, we know that they're actually counting votes as they're cast in the state of New Hampshire so far. We'll see how it goes. Uh, if you look at the state, part of it is to remember the history for Bernie. Sanders. He cannot escape the history uh, in the sense that he won New Hampshire and he won it huge. 
uh, in a two-person race uh, back in 2016, but he is from neighboring Vermont. He ran it up, winning. Look at how little Hillary Clinton won in terms of the towns of New Hampshire. So Sanders ran it up. It's a crowded field. It's four years later. He's not going to get 60 percent, but the expectation is he has to do well, and most people in New Hampshire think he has to win. Uh, then you want to see, you know, how are the Democrats doing all over the state in the sense that it's only four electoral votes, but this could be, this could be a, an important state come the general election. And if you look there... Uh, Hillary Clinton you know, lost the New Hampshire primary, but did carry the state in the general election against President Trump. But look at that. Look at that. Remember how many races were how many things were close. So one of the things Democrats are looking for tonight, do they have decent turnout? Are Democrats energized by the Democratic race? Because come November, whoever's up here for the Democrats is probably going to face stiff competition in New Hampshire. Now, let's just come back here as we wait for the votes to come in. What are you looking for? I'm going to stretch the state out a little bit. Forgive me for turning my back and just bring it up. Most of the population in New Hampshire is down here. Right. And so you have Portsmouth over here on the seacoast. Uh, this is a very progressive area. Is Bernie Sanders running strong here? Uh, it's a little bit suburban as well. Can Elizabeth Warren challenge him here? What's happening over here? It should be a Sanders stronghold. We'll take a look as that plays out. Another thing you look at, college towns. You come up here, Hanover, college town here. Is Sanders running it up? Or is Elizabeth Warren giving him competition among younger progressive voters? Is Pete Buttigieg sneaking in there? He's tried to do that as well. Another thing we'll look at there. Um, New Hampshire is overwhelmingly white, over 90 percent white. Uh, Nashua is more diverse. So look down here. What is the competition here? It's along the Massachusetts border. This, in theory, should be an Elizabeth Warren stronghold. But there's been a lot of competition down there. Klobuchar Buttigieg as well thinking they can do some business here. A lot of different places we'll go through the night. 200-plus towns. We'll have some fun. We're just getting started. Uh, it's going to be a, a fascinating night indeed. We're getting closer and closer to the big reveal from our exit poll and the first clues about the outcome tonight. We're also following breaking news in the Roger Stone case. All that much more as our special coverage continues right after this. This is CNN Breaking News. As we cover the New Hampshire primary, there's also breaking news unfolding Right here in Washington, a second U.S. prosecutor just resigned from the case against longtime Trump confidant Roger Stone. This comes after the Department of Justice revealed plans to reduce its original sentencing recommendation for Stone. Let's go to our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez. Uh, Evan, tell us more about this truly extraordinary development. That, that's right. Well, these are a really stunning series of events here at the Justice Department. You have two prosecutors who have announced withdrawal from this case against Roger Stone after the Justice Department essentially disavows and, and criticizes them for recommending uh, seven to nine years for Roger Stone, who, as you, as, as you know, uh, is a close associate of, of President Trump. The president last night was tweeting about this, criticizing the Justice Department. And of course, a few hours later uh, today, the Justice Department issued a statement saying essentially that the, the sentence that the prosecutors had recommended was way beyond what the department was expecting, that they say that, that, that essentially they're going to uh, file a new uh, document with the court later today, uh, essentially saying they want to they want to provide uh, they want to ask for a, a lesser sentence for Roger Stone. We have two prosecutors, Aaron Zelensky, who announced that he was withdrawing from the case. Another one, Jonathan Kravis, announced that he was withdrawing from the case and also resigning effective immediately from the Justice Department. So we don't know exactly what the new sentence that the Justice Department is going to ask for in the Roger Stone case. We can tell you that the Justice Department is saying that there was no communication between the president, between the White House and the Justice Department over this, that uh, this is something that appears to be uh, a miscommunication of, of sorts that happened here at the Justice Department. Well, 
Evan, stand by. I want to go over to the White House. CNN's Caitlin Collins is also working the story for us. Uh, Caitlin, these two prosecutors, they resigned after the president, after President Trump publicly criticized the Justice Department's original recommended uh, sentence for Stone. What are you hearing? What's the latest? Yeah, and Wolf, they're two of the four who signed on to that sentencing recommendation. We saw the one that the president said he believed was disgraceful and was tweeting about just last night saying this is a horrible and very unfair situation. He said the real crimes were on the other side as nothing happens to him. And Wolf, this is the key line from the president. He said, cannot allow this miscarriage of justice. So the president is not saying there at the end that he is going to pardon Roger Stone. That is something he has left open, the door open to, not ruling it out, of course, when reporters have asked him multiple times if that's something he's weighing for his longtime confidant. But Wolf, if you're reading that sentence there at the end of the president's tweet from last night, it's pretty clear how he feels about this situation. And it does seem to indicate that that is something he is considering. We know that Roger Stone's allies have been essentially lobbying the president from Fox News, saying that they believed he's been unfairly treated. And when they saw that sentencing recommendation on Monday, we're heard that the president was discussing it at length, weighing in on it. And of course, the question is whether or not he picked up the phone and called the attorney general, Bill Barr, about it, someone he's very close to. Right now, we do know Democrats are saying they are going to be looking into this, potentially investigating this lighter sentencing recommendation. It's a truly an extraordinary development. Uh, let's check in uh, with Jake right now. Jake, uh, tell us more about these extraordinary developments. Well, let's bring in CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor uh, Ellie Honig, uh, who joins us now. And Ellie, uh, how do you view these resignations? Is this clearly, uh, is this definitely uh, these two prosecutors uh, trying to make a statement? Oh, it has to be, Jake. This is completely stunning. I've seen thousands of cases in my career as a federal and state prosecutor. I've never seen anything like this. Start with the fact that you have the president of the United States saying that his own Justice Department had recommended a completely unjust sentence. And then on top of that, you have the Department of Justice coming back and now reversing itself, of course, coming to the aid of someone who is a close political and personal ally of Donald Trump. It stinks to high hell. There's all sorts of problems here. This is not normal. How unusual is it for the Trump Justice Department to announce plans to reduce the government's recommended sentence after the president took to Twitter to complain about it? I certainly cannot think of anything even remotely resembling this. Look, it happens sometimes that prosecutors will realize they made a mistake in calculating what the sentence should be. This does not seem to be that. This seems to be a full-scale reversal in a politically charged case by the Department of Justice. I've never seen anything like it. The, uh, the sentencing uh, request by the prosecutors was rather harsh, was it not? I mean, it's seven to nine years, I believe. I agree. Seven to nine years is on the high end for someone, given Roger Stone's prior lack of prior record and given the nature of the, the crimes here. They're serious, but seven to nine years seems high. But it's important that people understand that's not just a number that the Justice Department pulled out of nowhere. That's a number based on a calculation that you have to do under the federal sentencing guidelines. You add up the points. You see where it comes out. You put it on. There's an actual chart, a table that gives you what the recommended sentencing guidelines should be. And so that's how they ended up at that seven to nine year range. It would have been not at all unusual if the Justice Department said to the court that the range here is seven to nine years, but we think in the interest of justice, the sentence should be somewhat less. What is completely unusual to have DOJ come out first and say, this is the sentence, this is a just and appropriate sentence, then to have a tweet and now a reversal by DOJ. That's completely unusual. How do you expect the, the judge in this case uh, to react? Do you think he or she will, will abide 
by the newly recommended guidelines, go back to the seven to nine year recommendation. I mean, there must be some sort of way that you anticipate the judge will respond. Yeah, so Judge Amy Berman Jackson in Washington, D.C. has handled a lot of these high-profile cases. She certainly will take into effect the prosecution's recommendation. I don't know that she can unsee the the initial uh, recommendation that already came through. But ultimately, yes, judges do have to and will weigh the prosecutor's recommendation. Here she's in a strange spot because we haven't seen the new recommendation yet, but it's clearly going to be lower. Ultimately, it is the judge's decision. I do think ultimately she will come down from the seven to nine years, but I also think she will be uh, sort of recognize how bizarre it is that it happened in this way. All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. And Dana Bash, let's talk about this because, you know, it hasn't even been a full week since President Trump was acquitted Mm -hmm. uh, from the impeachment uh, articles. uh, And he has already had a a little vengeance tour. He has sought the resignations or firings of individuals who worked for him, who testified in the impeachment trial. Mm -hmm. Now he is blatantly protesting Mm -hmm. uh, what his own government, his own Justice Department recommended in terms of sentencing guidelines. For a friend of his, for a crony, uh, it's all rather shocking. That's right. And I was just pulling up on my phone a tweet from Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, effectively saying that his committee is going to look into this, which probably shouldn't be a surprise. But it is and should be looked at in the broader context that you just alluded to, which is what the president is doing and continues to do, especially in the face of Uh, Republicans who uh, some of them made tough political decisions to support the president uh, in the Senate in the acquittal and at least made it known publicly that they had discussions with the president and the president said, uh, you know, I learned my lesson. Well, this isn't proof that he learned any lesson. It's a different issue, but it's the same notion that he that he feels emboldened, empowered to kind of do what he wants and to shatter the norms. And this isn't just about disruption. This is about um, things that are potentially borderline on, you know, I don't know if it's illegal, but it's completely untoward. And it's not something that uh, comports with anything that any president has ever done before for a reason. It's not that it's, you know, was swampy before, is that this is not supposed to happen this way. Uh, and And it should also be taken in the context of what we're doing today. People are voting in New Hampshire. And a big thing that's on the mind of so many voters I talk to in New Hampshire mm-hmm. is how do we get the right person to be the nominee to confront this guy. It'll be interesting to see how Republicans on Capitol Hill respond to this because, I mean, if it were a Democratic president doing the same thing for a friend of his who was mm-hmm. Democrat, I mean, there would be hearings, there would be outrage. Uh, no it would be a four-alarm fire. Wolf? Truly an extraordinary development. Coming up, we're going to have more on the New Hampshire primary. We're going to have the first results from our exit poll very soon. It could be an early tip-off about how this night turns out. Stay with us. Much more right after this. We're only about a half an hour or so away from the first exit poll results uh, that might give us a significant sense of where this uh, election night in New Hampshire is moving. Let's go over to David Chalian, who's watching all of this unfold. Uh, first of all, David, we all remember what happened a week or so ago in <laughs> Iowa, the debacle there. How is that going to influence what's going on in New Hampshire right now? Right. I mean, it took a while, but we actually did get results out of Iowa, and that tees up where these candidates are heading into the race tonight. I want to remind everyone, take a look here. These are the state delegate equivalents out of Iowa, these state delegates, the all-important metric of determining the Iowa winner. And you see what is such a close race between Pete Buttigieg at 26.2% and Bernie Sanders at 26.1%. 
just a tenth of a percentage point, Buttigieg edged ahead of Sanders in this. Both of them have gotten momentum out of Iowa because of how close this result is. I also want to show you the popular vote in Iowa, and this is key because it's a different order. You'll take a look here. Remember, this is that final round of voting in Iowa, and look at this. It's Bernie Sanders who's on top by 2,568 votes. There's Pete Buttigieg. And I should remind you, Wolf, both of these campaigns have filed a request with the Iowa Democratic Party to uh, have a partial re-canvas of the vote because of all the inconsistencies that occurred in the vote reporting. And that final tally may get adjusted in, in the days ahead. This, this may not be the very final count of Iowa, but clearly you had Pete Buttigieg by a tenth of a percentage point edging ahead there in Iowa. Let's stay on top of the uh, popular vote right now. Once again, 100% of the precincts reporting finally uh, in Iowa right now. Uh, what, 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 if, does, what do these, the popular vote in Iowa tell us, if anything, about what we might expect in New Hampshire? Well, I think this is super interesting of what came out of Iowa. Remember, th- you got to remember how Iowa votes, right? So they had a first round of voting uh, when people showed up at the caucuses, and then Some candidates didn't make that threshold of 15 percent. There's a realignment. That's the final round of voting. But pay attention to this final column here. This is who gained and who lost between those two rounds of voting. And I think this is very instructive heading into New Hampshire tonight. For instance, take a look at Pete Buttigieg here. He was the biggest gainer. See that highlighted green number? 5,678 votes between the first round and the final round. What is that? That is the success of making an argument to people who supported someone else who was not viable. Come over to Pete's corner. We want to we explain to you why he's the right candidate. He did that more successfully than anyone else. You see here, Elizabeth Warren had a gain of 2,323. Bernie Sanders had a gain of 2,143. He was hoping for more of that to be competitive in the competitive in the delegates. But look at this one here. Joe Biden, he lost between those two rounds, 2,692 votes. That is the gut punch, by the way, that he's talking about. Obviously, his overall performance, but this is a test of organization. And he was unable to be viable in a lot of those precincts, which is why he lost vote. His voters went elsewhere, maybe to Buttigieg, maybe to Warren, maybe to Sanders. And look at the other side of the ledger here. You'll see the other people who lost share, uh, of, lost some votes between the first two rounds. Uh, Andrew Yang lost a lot, 7,170 between that first round and that final round of voting wolf. Amy Klobuchar lost the 1,353. She lost fewer votes than did Joe Biden. Again, these folks weren't viable in a lot of those precincts, and that's why their voters were able to move elsewhere. But it was Pete Buttigieg that was the biggest gainer between these two rounds. And and that is why you see Buttigieg and Sanders heading into New Hampshire in this race, making the case to voters that that they should be very much the top of mind for these voters. We'll see if the popular vote outcome in Iowa does uh, portend good or bad for some of these candidates exactly. heading into uh, New Hampshire. We're counting down to the top of the hour right now. And the first results from our exit poll, we could get early hints at how New Hampshire votes. Uh, much more ahead on this very important primary night after a quick break. We're waiting for exit polls out of uh, New Hampshire. We should be getting those in about, as you see, 24, uh, 24 minutes from there. Right now, uh, back with our, uh, our panel. Kirsten, what do you looking at tonight, what are you going to be focusing on? 
Well, a bunch of different things. I mean, for what one big thing is to look at what happens to Biden. Obviously, uh, he underperformed in Iowa, and he was supposed to be sort of the big dog in this race. He's, he's already going to be heading to South Carolina. Yeah, later he's already today. moving out of South Carolina. It's it's just it, it's become almost a question of how badly does he do? Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll surprise us, right? So that could be something that could be a surprise. Um, and I think, you know, to see what happens with, with Buttigieg, there's an assumption that this will go to Bernie. He overwhelmingly won it last time. It's it's in his area near Vermont. Um, what happens with Buttigieg? Does he come in second? Does he come? How close does he come to Bernie if he comes in second? There's also Amy Klobuchar who feels yep. that she's been yep. surging. Well, I mean, in, to that point, Ashton, about expectations, I mean, if Amy Klobuchar finishes third, she will tout it, I think rightly so, as a major victory. <laughs> Joe Biden finishes third or fourth. There's a reason he's not in New Hampshire anymore. I want to one other B in addition to Biden, Buttigieg, and, and Kirsten mentioned it, but I do think there's a tendency a little bit to overlook Bernie's performance here. He did win New Hampshire by 23 over Hillary Clinton four years ago. No question. He was the favorite from the start, maybe with Elizabeth Warren at the start, kind of coming up uh, on his heels. That said, he won the popular vote in Iowa. I know he's slightly behind people to judge at the moment in terms of delegates, but won the popular vote in Iowa. I think he is very likely to win tonight. And if Bernie Sanders wins tonight, we will have something that many Democratic establishment types said would never happen, which is at least on February 12th, Bernie Sanders will be the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. Now, I know Bakari's not going to like this because I get it. I'm not saying he's a guaranteed victor because we, there's a lot of states and a lot of diversity yet to come. I just think it is worth noting that a guy who is a Democratic Socialist who has run as a Democratic Socialist for the Senate, he's running as a Democrat for president, will be the Democratic favorite on February 12th. Doesn't mean he will be on March 12th. I I cannot disagree with Chris (laughs) any more than I'm about to now. I mean, first, uh, you cannot be the front runner or the favorite to win the Democratic nomination without black people voting in this election. Um, That has not happened. It will not happen until you get to Clark County in Nevada. And you won't seriously have that until you get to South Carolina. And so all of these obituaries that are being written about everyone from uh, Biden and Warren and everyone else. I mean, everybody just needs to slow down. Before we crown Bernie Sanders, uh, the front runner, before we do all of these other things, let's just slow down and actually let some black people vote. I think tonight, well, but, but I think for, tonight, for, for any candidate, for any Democrat, is, is it make or break tonight? I mean, are there some I, that will not I be say. going? I, I was going to say, and this is kind of backtracking on what I said earlier, I do think that candidates such as uh, Pete Buttigieg has to run up the score tonight. I think he'll do well. But also Elizabeth Warren. And yeah. the reason I say Elizabeth Warren is because you're underperforming with African-Americans, right? And if you don't do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, then the question the campaign has to ask is where do you do well? Because after you leave uh, New Hampshire, you get to a more diverse state in Nevada. You get to an extremely diverse state in South Carolina. On Super Tuesday, there are four or five states that look very similar to the electorate in South Carolina in more states where African-Americans will play a role. Yeah. And, and also after weeks of Democratic members of Congress, House managers, arguing over and over again to the Senate, if you don't do something, the president is going to feel like he has he's unshackled and he can do what he wants. And I'm getting a lot of messages from Democrats on Capitol Hill saying this is exhibit A or maybe it's B, C or D at this point. Well, that's right, because obviously he's fired some key impeachment witnesses as well. Joining me now, Kerry Cordero a CNN legal analyst and former counsel to the assistant attorney general of the United States. Uh, Kerry, just uh, as a legal expert, somebody who who, uh, worked uh, for the assistant attorney general of the U.S., how unusual 
is this? I mean, obviously, uh, we have seen uh, outrage when presidents have pardoned or commuted the sentences of well-connected individuals. I'm thinking of Mark Rich 20 years ago, but that at least went through a, something of a process. Uh, no? Well, I think the, the question has always been how much can the institutions withhold the constant political pressure that the president is trying to put on them. And he has long had his sights on the Justice Department, on prosecutions, on prosecutions of people that he thought were, quote unquote, unfair, people that has been affiliated with him, friends of his, people who were affiliated with his campaign, and prosecutions of political opponents where he's the one advocating the use of the Justice Department to do his own political bidding and retribution. And so the timing of his tweets about this and then the decision today that they are changing the sentencing recommendation looks like it has caused the resignation of assistant U.S. attorneys. And I can't emphasize enough how uh, unusual, how dramatic a step that is Mm -hmm. for individuals who are career prosecutors, not political appointees. Right. Three individuals. Career prosecutors. Three individuals now, Aaron Zielinski, uh, Jonathan Kravis and Adam uh, Jed have all who they were all uh, working for the government to prosecute Roger Stone. All three of them have resigned. Hold hold on right there, Kerry uh, Cordero, because I want to go to Evan Perez with some uh, new information. Uh, Evan, uh, tell us. Uh, Jake, the the Justice Department has now filed a new sentencing memo uh, here with the federal court. And now, essentially, they're punting to the judge overseeing this case. They're saying that they're not going to make a recommendation as far as how much time Roger Stone should get in prison. But they are recommending some prison time. They're just saying they're not going to say how how much. Uh, They say it should be far less. Uh, than what the prosecutors last night in the court filing said, which was seven to nine years. And of course, uh, as, you, as you guys have been talking about, uh, the Justice Department uh, leadership here in the building behind me uh, took issue with that. They decided that this was extreme and excessive to ask for seven to nine years for Roger Stone. So the new filing, which you have to believe was overseen by the leaders in this building behind me, uh, is essentially leaving it up to the judge saying, that while seven to nine years is beyond the pale, is excessive, uh, they're not going to give a specific recommendation to the judge. And I I think you guys have been uh, talking a little bit about how unusual this is. I've been covering the department for about a dozen years, and I've never, ever seen anything like this. I mean, look, there's disagreements behind the scenes uh, here and between here, this building, and U.S. attorney's offices around the the country. There's disagreements about whether you should throw the book at someone Uh, they get overruled. What never happens is that a court filing is made giving a recommendation for uh, a sentencing and then, you know, obviously the president is tweeting about it and then a few hours later the department reverses course. That never, ever happens. And of course, as you guys have mentioned, now you have three of the prosecutors who are overseeing this case uh, are withdrawing from it. One of them is resigning completely from his job at the Justice Department. Again, very extraordinary uh, series of of events here at the Justice Department uh, just in the last uh, few hours. Evan, is there any reaction from people in the building, the ones who have not resigned in protest, about uh, what the president has obviously orchestrated here by publicly protesting at a stiff sentence recommendation? We should note it is is a stiff sentence recommendation for somebody who has been a friend of his for decades uh, who, according to prosecutors uh, and a court, uh, lied, lied to Congress and, and, uh, and more. 
Yeah, Jake, I mean, look, I think uh, stunned is the word I've heard uh, from prosecutors uh, inside this building and, and elsewhere in the country who are they're simply stunned because, look, I, I, look, there's been a lot of dysfunction in the last three and a half years. There's a lot of things that happened as a result of the president tweeting. What has not happened is that the people in this building, usually, you know, they've been able to keep it together and at least present the, a front that, the, that what the Justice Department is doing is independent, is separate from what the president is asking for. And so, look, we've heard from the Justice Department today, I think we've heard from the White House that they say that the president has not talked to Bill Barr, the attorney general has not mm -hmm. leaned on him to bring, the, uh, to, to reduce the sentence, to go lean. Let's listen on, to on President Trump. Stone. Evan, let's listen into President Trump. We have comments that he just made in the Oval yeah, Office. Let's listen in. Ridiculous that, that if that's, no, I didn't speak to the just, I'd be able to do it if I wanted. I have the absolute right to do it. Uh, I stay out of things. Uh, to a degree that people wouldn't believe, but I didn't speak to him. I thought the recommendation was ridiculous. I thought the whole prosecution was ridiculous. And I look at others that haven't been prosecuted, or I don't know where it is now. But when you see that, I thought it was an insult to our country, and it shouldn't happen. And uh, we'll see what what goes on there. But uh, that was a uh, that was a horrible aberration. Uh, these are the, I guess, the, the same Mueller people that put everybody through hell, and uh, I think it's a disgrace. No, I have not been involved with it at all. Would you consider commuting or... I don't want to talk about that now. I think it was a disgraceful recommendation. What do you think they ought to be ashamed of themselves. What they've done to General Flynn, what they've done to others, and then the really guilty ones, people that have committed major crimes are getting away with it. Uh, I think it's a disgrace. See what happens. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, Mr. President. President Trump uh, attacking prosecutors who work for not all that much money, could make a lot more working in private practice, uh, putting people who break the law in jail, attacking prosecutors, federal prosecutors, while he defends his action of publicly tweeting that a sentence handed down, recommended rather, about a friend of his of decades, somebody who lied to Congress and more, was too stiff, and the Justice Department acquiesced to his wishes, undercut their own prosecutors, and then submitted a new recommendation prompting the resignation of three prosecutors. Anderson, it is a stunning turn of events, and I cannot imagine what would happen, what a Republican Congress or Senate would do if President Obama had done something like that for a Democratic crony uh, interfering, involving himself in the in the course of justice like that. Yeah, Jake, I mean, the, we talked a lot about sort of the assault on institutions over the last several years. I mean, this is this goes right to the heart of our legal system, of our system of justice, of what um, of what is a, a president can can do. It's extraordinary that the Department of Justice so quickly acquiesced after a tweet by the president of the United States, Governor Granholm, uh, you were former federal prosecutor, attorney general. Wait. Is this at all normal? No, it's clearly not normal. It is clearly utterly offensive to the rule of law. This is what sets this country apart. This is what a banana republic does. This is what a dictator does. You help your friends and you use the Justice Department to punish your enemies. It is outrageous. I hope people are infuriated by this. I mean, really, even his base has to see how important it is to have an unbiased justice system. And what he has done is poisoned it. Shame on him. He's got to go. When you work, you work next level. 
And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.